Welcome to The Lens with me, Wally Barrett. My first guest today is Dame Helena Morrissey. She's Head of Personal Investing at Legal and General Investment Management. She has recently written a book called A Good Time to Be a Girl, and she's the founder of The 30% Club. My second guest is Christy McKenzie, who's an engagement manager at a company called The Bakery in London. We're going to be talking about who you should listen to at big moments in your life, how to find a company culture that fits and what to do if you're in one that doesn't. And finally, why you should challenge the status quo in everything from your personal life to the world around you, especially if you've got what one of our guests calls a linky brain. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My first guest today is Dame Helena Morrissey, who's Head of Personal Investing at Legal and General Investment Management. Dame Helena, welcome. Thank you. Now, all of my guests, I ask the same question, which is, what was your first ever job? Take us back. What do you remember? I was 14 years old and I did tomato picking, which is quite a killer job, actually. I have great respect for everyone who has to pick fruit or tomatoes in particular. Turns you green. Yes, does it? Um, I was um, earning about 28p an hour. Yes, where in the world is this? Uh, This is um, in Sussex, near my parents' home, and I would cycle to the fruit picking farm and... I had to wear all sorts of sort of protective gear to stop myself turning completely green. Um, but still, one's hair, one's face, you know, it was a real sort of cleansing job required when I got home. And I soon realised that I was earning a lot less than the 18-year-olds and picking many more tomatoes. So I negotiated for piecework, yes. um, which worked for a bit. Um, but it was, you know, definitely one of the hardest things I've done, really, yeah, certainly so physically. It, and even at that age, negotiating, striking a better deal. Well, I didn't want to be taken advantage of, did yeah. I? So, um, but yeah, it took me a few weeks to work that one out. And of course, in the end, the farmer said, no, stop, we have to pick you back on the other yes. um, f- uh, flat rate. So uh, it, it worked for a while anyway. No, I get it. And I also have this sort of green Hulk-like image. Well, fast forward a few years, he went to school near Chichester, but then mm. off to Cambridge University for philosophy. Yeah. Um, which is not what happened next. So that's what my interesting, um, where my interest was. That next step straight after uni, why did you make the decision you made for your very first rung on the career ladder? What happened? So I didn't know what I wanted to do after university, and I literally fell into fund management. Um, I tried doing law in the long vac term at Cambridge, where you can do a six-week course, but I asked too many questions, um, and you're supposed to just learn things. So um, that didn't work out. And I went back to philosophy, and friends, mainly male friends, actually, said at the time, actually, you'd be good in the city. They were all applying. Um, These are a long, long time ago, so there still was a milk round then when the big firms came to the universities. And I really enjoyed the people that I met. I still didn't quite know what it would entail, this job, but I knew it would involve numbers, communicating, working on things that no one quite knew the answer. And all of that appealed to me. But I literally just fell into it um, and then really enjoyed it and it became my career. And so it was, it was to some extent, a leap of faith, but... Yeah, um, and I think, I mean, obviously we are talking about over 30 years ago now when uh, people weren't expected, young people weren't expected to you know, do internships and really research jobs. It was much more relaxed in some ways. Um, and actually, I think having a philosophy background, I'd say has stood me in good stead over the years in the city. That's interesting. In what way? What's an example of well, that? Well, I mean, it's such a cliche to say it teaches you how to think, but obviously it teaches you to sweep away assumptions and to challenge and to accept the fact that we don't really know anything. Yeah. We might like to think every day that the sun's going to shine, or perhaps not in England, but um, that you know the sun will rise and set um, and that there are certain things we can take for granted. But actually, we, we can't prove any of that. Um, and so we make these sort of rules for ourselves to, so we can get on with life. 
And the city, I think, I mean, any job really, but the city is full of uncertainties. Yes. Um, and actually being able to think laterally, to actually enjoy challenging. Um, and I'd say some of my best decisions made as a fund manager for the many years I was doing that were when I was completely wrong, frankly. I was the only person that thought like that. Interesting. I sometimes worry that some of these roles today say must have maths, must have engineering. Uh, does the philosophy student still get a hearing well, in your recruitment processes? It's one of the reasons why we don't have enough diversity in um, the city. And we've actually, I think, gone backwards on that. We've standardised recruitment processes to make us feel more professional. And in some ways, that's good. But actually, um, I run now the Diversity Project and we, I got together a group of CEOs and we all agreed that very few of us would make it into the industry these days. People have come from very different backgrounds, different degree subjects. Some have no degrees at all um, and, and all have risen to the top of the profession um, in a way that probably we've made it difficult for people to do now. Yeah, so even as so much had evolved and progressed, do you recognise that actually that might have gone backwards? Well, I think it has. I, I mean, I think one always has to be careful not just to kind of create rules to make, you know, things more... Um, standardised and professional whilst actually realising you might lose something in that process. Yeah. Um, you'll be known to many listeners of The Lens as the founder of The 30% Club. Now that was started in 2010 when FTSE 100 boards were made of just 12.5% women. So just mm. give us a very brief snapshot what has changed, but then I'd love to ask you a little bit more yeah. about digging into the organisation itself and what worked and frankly what didn't as well. So these days we're up to about 28% women on FTSE company boards. And then if you looked at the next 250 companies, actually the progress has been even faster from a lower base. So only about 7% of directors were women back in 2010. And now again, it's in the mid-20s percent. But to be honest, more importantly, the mindset has shifted. Because when um, I started the 30% Club, this was definitely perceived as a women's issue. This was something about sort of fairness for women. It was addressing one underrepresentation of women. But now I think it's very much seen as just part of a modern boardroom that you need, and not just more women, but more diverse perspectives, more diverse people from all different backgrounds. Yeah, and you started in very practical terms, writing handwritten letters to FTSE 100 chairmen, mm. typically, bar one at the time. And uh, the response you got was not always positive. So my question is, what did you do when you got those negative responses? Change minds or move on? I moved on, really. Um, and I moved on in one sense because I, I downed my pen. I wasn't going to carry on with that thankless task. Um, and the letters were pretty hostile. And it, again, I think it showed the sense at the time um, that actually this was seen as a women's issue and not a business issue. But I didn't give up, obviously. Um, what I did was I realised I needed another way through and actually enlisted the support of many of those other chairmen who were enlightened and who saw this as part of the modernisation of the boardroom. And actually they enlisted their peers and it was really very instrumental. I, I could see how to affect change much more um, effectively from their role, in fact, than, than my flawed attempt to do it. Um, but we were partners and one of the things that I realised was we can make much more progress with men and women working together than if women are sort of fighting against men uh, and being militant in any way. Now, turning back the clock, um, those eight years, so when you first started, uh, on a less positive note, activities, initiatives, which frankly you now file under, a waste of time. You just should not have bothered because mm. it wasn't the quickest route to change for you and for the 30% Club. 
So well, we had a number of, of false steps and some of the programs that we started, uh, particularly in the early years, about trying to improve the executive pipeline, as people call it. I never like the term pipeline. It sounds like mm. women are sort of squeezed through mm. toothpaste tube. But people use it as shorthand for how many women are there sort of further down the ranks who might one day be board directors or in the senior uh, C-suite. And um, we tried a number of things and many of them, to be honest, it was like a drop in the ocean. And that's something that I realised. Sometimes it can seem incredibly overwhelming, you say, particularly around recognizing and we should celebrate uh, businesses that are doing something innovative but the idea of sort of having lots of award ceremonies and hoping that that will sort of catch on with everybody I I learned that that's not really the right way forward Um, and to not talk about it quite so much but just to do it so one of the things that's worked out best has been a cross-company mentoring scheme um, run by someone called Liz Dimmock who's set up something called Women Ahead a social enterprise we now have 2,000 people on that this year Uh, over 50% of the mentors are men and over 100 organisations and we track the women's progress Um, so it's really just sort of not being wedded to a view oh well we'll roll out unconscious bias training and everybody will suddenly not have any biases yes you know see the evidence yeah. and then well, indeed, and then change quite the track. opposite was often the case i suppose where it's been made compulsory it's often had the opposite effect i think it, yes and and people do these things well intentioned um and then we need to be open minded and it's very difficult i think particularly when it's something new one thing that we realized early on in 30% club we didn't have a map to get to the destination it was like driving through fog. We could mm. sort of knew where we wanted to get to, but mm. could only see the next 10 feet mm. ahead. Maybe that was an advantage. It was in the end, but it felt hard going at the yeah. time, I must admit. But just being open. I mean, in technology, obviously, people talk about open source and inviting different perspectives yeah. and listening. Um, and, and listening to the real experiences of the women in this case who were saying, actually, it's not working. We're not, we're not getting further. And I guess part of your work through the 30% Club was looking at the numbers and wanting to change things and make a difference. A large amount was very personal and based on your own journey. So uh, you've recently written a book, A Good Time to Be a Girl. I hugely enjoyed it, I have to say. I don't have to say, but I choose to to say. I did did enjoy it. And one of the things that you begin painting a picture of is two very different women, both high-flying, one whose career stalls and one whose career goes from strength to strength. So just take us, uh, Mm. who are those two women? Well, actually, they were both me. And the first, um, my first job, I was in in a worldly sense of the word, a complete failure. I failed to get the first promotion, um, timed with me having my first child. And when I came back from maternity leave, I was told there's nothing wrong with my performance, but actually there was some doubt over my commitment with the baby. And um, that shocked me. And after sort of digesting that uh, revelation, uh, and it perhaps shouldn't have come as a surprise because I was the only woman in a team of 16, I, I did move on from that firm. And then when I joined Newton Investment Management, I became CEO in seven years. Um, and the difference there was that I had a, a completely different culture. I was operating within a real meritocracy and I had a fantastic mentor in the form of the founder, Stuart Newton. Yeah, and that difference with hindsight um, uh, could you have done that any differently at the previous firm or did you feel that actually there was something wrong with that culture? No, I think, I mean, the, the firm's very different now. Um, the current CEO has made a big impact on um, the culture. But at the time, I was, you know, on my own. And my advice to young women is often, you know, just make sure if you have an ally, if you feel that you have supporters, um, they might not be official mentors, but people who will look out for you. If you're not alone, then it's worth giving it a go. If you are sort of pushing water uphill, then it's just best to move on. But I tell the story because because it shows that we're not often a success at the first attempt. Um, and we do need to pick ourselves up, perhaps change the formula, change what we're doing um, and try again. So within this um, conversation around changing the system, I get the very distinct impression um, that this is not something um, 
which is for women to fix on their own. It is a joint effort. It is about um, equal lives in that sense. But what is fueling um, your, your belief that that is how to change things? Well, I think it's gender equality literally means equality and two, it's two halves of the same coin. I think a lot of the work that has been done around gender initiatives has been around the female perspective and that's completely understandable. But we do need to listen to men too. Um, business in the community, I chair the gender equality campaign for BITC and we have just um, introduced a survey, Equalize. We want to hear from men, particularly those with caring responsibilities. What is their experience? Would they do more uh, of that caring um, if they had more opportunity given by their employers? Mm. Have you ever sensed over the years that people answer slightly differently in their own name as opposed to anonymously? Is that is that a red herring or is there any truth in that? Um, it's funny because um, actually, well, the question is, what, what would they be answering more truthfully, isn't it? Because actually, when we did a survey, which also canvassed uh, male perspectives um, as part of the 30% Club's work at universities, looking at future aspirations mm. of students. And actually, um, over 90% of the male and female students said that they would prioritise work-life balance um, and they didn't prioritise stature and um, you know money so much. And I thought perhaps it was because they were asked you know in the street and it was trackable to them and so forth, but it was all very uh, remote, very much in the comfort of their own study halls or offices. And um, it was interesting that actually that I think uh, showed us that was what they really felt. Yeah, and that's fascinating. Because research again, Cambridge University. Uh, yeah, actually across twenty universities, twenty-one universities in the end, we did it a pilot at Cambridge, and that was one of those examples which it seemed to show us something that seemed to work. So then we broadened it out because obviously Cambridge isn't necessarily representative of the whole country. Yeah, no, fascinating. Thank you. Um, I know that one of the questions you get asked a lot is about culture, but particularly, how do you even discover or get to know what a culture is from outside an organisation? Mm. Uh, people evaluating their next move. I mean, they're picking up on all sorts of clues, mm. I suppose. But how? What do they? Do? It is incredibly difficult. Um, I think certainly when I was looking for a new role after leaving Newton, um, one of the reasons why I joined Legal in General was because I knew a number of the people there already and I had worked closely with them um, on a number of different projects, um, everything from executive pay to diversity issues. And um, I knew they were authentic. Um, the only way to test if you don't have that advantage is to ask lots of people and to ask everyone who interviews you See if their answers stack up. You know, yeah. how would you describe the culture? If they're sort of foraging around, coming up with sort of random uh, words, clearly they're just making it up as they go along. If the words resonate and are consistent throughout, then uh, it's worth a shot. Interesting. So a nice open question as yeah. opposed to, is it this, is it that? Yeah, just ask, well, how would you define the culture? Yeah, really interesting. Well, we might come back uh, to culture a bit later. Uh, for now, Helena, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, our next guest on The Lens today is Christy McKenzie. Uh, welcome, Christy. Hi. It's very nice to meet you today. You are you have a great role, which is you're an engagement manager at The Bakery I am. in London. So I need to know more about The Bakery in a second. Um, I would never be so rude as to ask a guest on the lens their age. However, I am going to give a pit stop of your career because uh, you studied at Nottingham Trent University. And before that, what was your first job? Uh, I was working for Dorothy Perkins. I got it just before my 16th birthday. And then I worked all the way up until university. Which was Nottingham Trent. And your choice of study there? Marketing, design, communications. Yeah. And as you were going through those student years, any thoughts about what you were going to do, what that first step was going to be? Oh, gosh, I had no idea. I was studying something that I didn't actually enjoy. Um, I wasn't enjoying my course. And in my first year, I was looking to move to another course, but I couldn't find one that I felt I could commit myself to and was confident in it enough to leave one course for another. Um, And so I stuck it out. But 
I was so glad by the end that I did because on my placement year, I went and worked um, for eCircle, which are now part of Teradata, and I loved it. I felt like all the theory I had been learning, I could put into practice mm. and I can see it in real life. And when I came back to university, I could challenge and have an opinion and, you know, say that was wrong. You know, they don't do that in, in real life or in the real world. And my complete, I just completely changed. I ended up loving the course. Interesting. <laughs> so that outside perspective gave you an extra Definitely. sense of motivation for the course. Yeah, I can't recommend it to actually students enough if they're still studying to do a placement year. Yeah, yeah no, completely agree. So I'm going to jump a little bit around with the timeline, but now, just give us a sense of what the bakery does. It's fascinating. Um, just, but in your words, what's it up to? So the bakery are an open innovation, challenge-led business accelerator, and that is quite a mouthful. Mm. But um, ultimately, they work with large organisations and uh, dig deep into their challenges to really understand um, how they can solve these. And then they go out to their network of startups to find out who, um, if any, have the capability to... Um, to solve these challenges and then they get them to work together to create this product or to create um to create the solution love it so it's slightly sort of mapping matchmaking yes definitely. Is, it, is it all top secret you'll have to give us an example of the sort of stuff oh, that you're doing yeah definitely so for instance um we're working with the kia group at the moment they're a construction company and uh they've got a project at the moment called social value so uh the way the uk um construction arena is going at present is towards um, impact. So for instance, they'd be putting bids out um, and wanting people or those companies to actually, as well as them delivering the the property or the structure or whatever it is they're building, but also what impact are they creating within the community? What value will they be bringing to the community? And so Kia got in touch with the bakery to find out how can they actually... um, get value from the projects that they're delivering but also how can they measure this value Um, and so they're working with us so that um, we can help them find startups really innovative amazing companies um, who are forward thinking and uh, you know may not necessarily have the resources but have the skill set and the tenacity and then working with Kia or large companies such as Kia to you know help them solve this problem and I think it's one that we hear about again and again large companies have the resources but they're not as agile whereas you know startups have the um, forward thinking innovative they're swift and they're agile but they don't necessarily have the resources so how can we take um, the advantages of both and pair them together yeah and and, and help them get the most from each other I suppose exactly when you talk about it Christy you're very energized about it so what do you think it is about this role uh, that gets you out of bed in the morning if you could sum it up oh gosh um I am energized I really really uh enjoy the role as well as you know working for the bakery um i think it's because you're working with new technology all the time and you're solving real challenges and i love the fact i have such an admiration and passion for startups it takes a lot of gall to go out on your own and create you know something new something different and really um you know serve serve a market but often they need a help in hand and that's what I love about the bakery. They've spotted an opportunity where they're able to capitalise on, um, you know, startups' innovativeness as well as the challenge that large corporates have. Love it. So um, not everyone is as fortunate to find something that, you know, lights them up in that way. So any lesson you've learnt, um, because you've worked for numerous organisations, we don't have to list them, but anything you've learnt about when was the right time for you to move on? How were you making those decisions as you went through those 
earlier years? Um, I think it's probably listening to myself. I can't speak for anyone else, but I find that I think I am quite in tune with what's working and what's not for me. And I can give you an example. So, for instance, I was working for Rackspace and, you know, I thought I was happy and I was enjoying my role and then they got bought out. So they were public and then they went private and then they started making huge redundancies. And luckily, my head wasn't on the chopping board. However, in that process, it is such an awful process, redundancy. It made me question things and it probably, if that event didn't happen, maybe I wouldn't have questioned things, but it made me think... Am I where I want to be? Am I making the impact that I want to make? And it forced me to consider some things that maybe, you know, I hadn't considered before. And ultimately, I knew that I wanted to help people. I knew that I had a huge passion for business. And so it made me think, should I stay here or should I take the next step? And so I took the next step and it it made me move to Uganda and I was working with micro businesses out there. And And were you going through that, Christy, on your own or were you using certain sounding boards? Did you have a sort of, you know, kitchen cabinet who were helping you through that? Definitely. My friends are amazing. Um, I think they challenge me and also... I think they help me see things that I don't necessarily see. So, for instance, I, I remember having this with one of my really good friends. Um, and I said to her, I'm not sure what I want to do, but this is what I'm interested in. And she was like, you should go and work for a charity. And I was like, I'm not so sure. Like, I don't know where I can fit into a charity. What did you do? My friend said, no, look into Balloon Ventures. Yes. Um, and she sent me the link and... As soon as I read it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got to apply. And, it was and this is a highly entrepreneurial organisation. That is right? a, yeah, a very highly entrepreneurial organisation. So just tell us in a nutshell what you were doing for them, because it's fascinating, actually. Yeah, so their mission is basically that you can solve poverty through enterprise. And it is that simple. We went out there working with micro-businesses. I was leading a team out there who were working as consultants with these micro-businesses to help them develop. And we're just teaching the business skills. Yeah, well, I can't help but... Well, I've got so many questions about it, but we're... <laughs> we're um, uh, let, let, let me move on to another thing I've wanted to ask you, which is cast your mind forward. Uh, anything you're able to share about your, your bigger picture goals, where you see yourself, some of the things, you know, life is short. Yeah, life is short. You can do anything, right? <laughs> yes, I think ultimately I would love to start my own business. I think right now I'm getting such knowledge and it's such a passion for me to be working with uh, young enterprises. But ultimately I would like to see myself running a business further down the line well here's to that and let's keep in touch about that for sure uh helena christie it's great to bring you together in the studio today so i often ask guests if they've got sort of questions for each other as they've heard each other uh speaking um i don't know who'd like to go first has somebody got a question up their sleeve i do i do have a question she's keen she's keen (laughs) far away (laughs) so um you have done so much which is amazing and as you were talking about some key highlights in your career, the word tenacity came to mind, but it also came to mind, you know, you were a woman in a team of 16. I can imagine there was a lot to overcome, but how did you overcome that? Because I can imagine there must have been quite a few hurdles along the way. Yes, I mean, one of the elements of my story is that um, I've always had to work, you know, when now people look and they think, oh, all so successful and everything, but, you know, I've known 
you know, financial struggles and my husband was made redundant and interest rates were 15%. And in lots of ways, I'm grateful. I know it sounds odd now, odd in some ways, but I'm grateful because it made me hungry. It made me want to provide for my family and it made me sort of want to strive for the next thing. It never Giving up wasn't really an option. Mm. And I have seen uh, women who perhaps have a bit more of a luxury of choice sort of not, not necessarily fulfilling their career potential because they maybe have other options. But the, um, the real turning point, and you mentioned your friends, I mean, mine has been definitely having allies and sounding boards and mentors and friends. I think it's, um, you know, we all need people. The, the, the mistake sometimes I think anybody makes is to think that they have to have all the answers themselves. And actually, most days we have uncertainties and actually building your confidence and building confidence and being as authentic to your, your, what you really believe in, mm. it doesn't come you know, just from yourself. You need, well, I think most people need others to um, to help them along the way. And I've learned to recognise that um, I'm not an island and that I need um, I need the support if that doesn't sound too much like sort of crutches. But it's actually, I think, the way we all grow as well, that we have someone just gives us that little bit of encouragement to take the next step. And how do you know, Helen, a word that keeps coming up in the book is persistence. How do you know when to persist and when to just say, look, I'm going to go and pick another battle today? Yeah, I mean, I do um, often try to sort of step back from the situation sort of almost well, consciously as if one's having an out-of-body experience and just think, actually, is this one of those things that's so important to, to fight? Because we don't have unlimited energy, time, so forth. And I have seen that people can sometimes waste, you know, a good worry as it were. They can get stuck into something. Um, there isn't, obviously, an, 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 an easy answer. There isn't a formula for working that out. But trying to be a little bit distant, I think a lot of us find it much easier to, to give advice to somebody else and to give advice to ourselves and actually trying to just step back and say, actually, maybe I let this one go, um, is quite important. Helena, a question for Christy, hearing her story. Yeah, no, I think it's one of the very basic questions, because you're so impressive, you've done so much, and you're so enthusiastic, I love all of that, is when, when have you, you know, your trip to Uganda, your time there, which obviously sounds so impactful, as well as um, exciting for yourself, then when did you decide, how did you decide it was time to move on to the next stage? Um... I think it sounds really, I don't think it's a, an answer that not everyone can relate to, but I think my unconscious told me because often when, I, you know, something's going on with me that I haven't clearly worked out in my conscious mind, I can't sleep. I, I just, I can't sleep. And um, and it's something that once I, the insomnia starts, it means I then have to start thinking and I need to start questioning my actions and questioning my decisions and where I am at this point. So what you're saying is you're incredibly self-aware. Oh, and yeah. I think that's the most, you know, the, the thing that is relevant for mm. people. Everyone will have a different way of exhibiting it. Insomnia might be one we share at those <laughs> moments. But um, I think that's a really good, insightful answer that actually you... There's, there's, and that's why people have to live their own life and work out their own sort of what makes them happy and what the mo- moments they have to move on from. Helena, your book, A Good Time to Be a Girl. I'd love to know briefly uh, why it's a good time to be a girl and not a woman, so perhaps we can talk about that. But perhaps first, Christy, to what extent does it feel to you like a good time to be a woman in business? Well, to be honest, I wouldn't want to go backwards. Um, Helena, you are not much older than me. (laughs) I am. Double. No, but in, in, in what I would think is, you know, real terms, you're actually not. And um, I think you've, even though you're not much older than me, you've had to pave the way and you've had to, you know, fight a few more battles than hopefully I will have to fight. And so I am very glad that I am, you know, a, a woman right now um, in this day and age. That and also I'm black. And so, you know, 
the further you go back, it, it's it's not good. So um, that's why it's a good time to be a woman for me. And as you look at the scenario today, Christy, uh, let me ask you bluntly, are there certain scenarios you've had to face where you say, I've been at an advantage, a disadvantage, or do you just not see uh, any distinction there? You say, I'm Christy, and I haven't had to experience it either way. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a really hard question to answer. I think if if my mother was to answer this question, she'd say, yes, I've seen it. And, you know, I've faced uh, racism or some kind of discrimination. But I think the racism that is around today is is more um, maybe like institutionalized or systematic, if those are if are, those are the right words, in terms of that they are not to your face. They are ingrained in systems that may not favor people of colour, rather than it being so overt. Very interesting. Well, Helena, um, <laughs> why, why a girl, I think? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, first of all, there's the obvious alliteration point. It's good and girl. Um, but to be more serious, um, I do th- I'm do. i not claiming it's all fixed. Um, I do think if you're born a, a girl today, then you have a great future ahead. Um, and as Chris has already pointed out, I mean, there's been sort of progress over um, all the centuries up until this point, um, which we have to celebrate. I personally feel that we stand on the verge of a really exciting moment and I don't think it's a coincidence that we have the whole Me Too and the sexual harassment scandals, the whole transparency and also obviously the outcry over some of the gender pay gap data all of these are the sort of end game playing out I feel um, uh, whereby attitudinally people want equality, men and women and not just you know more career opportunities for, for women but men to have more choices too I think a lot of men have felt very strange jacketed by societal expectations about their role. And finally, I think, you know, we've obviously got now technology, um, which is a whole other subject in itself, but enables us to create different ways of working. Longevity means that our chronology around careers is being shaken up. Um, and as I say, sort of attitudinally, people are now, you know, power does not mean being told what to do. It means actually bringing in different um, ideas and actually engaging and connecting with people. And that plays into women's strength. So I feel now we've got to think bigger about the gender equality, not just have a few diversity initiatives. Um, and it, it's the same goes for racial equality and LGBT. And, you know, now difference matters. Difference is important. Comes across very strongly in the book that whereas Sheryl Sandberg, CEO of Facebook's mantra is lean in, engage with the system. Um, yours seems to be alongside that, yes, and change the system. Well, let's shake it up. I mean, when in my first job I had where I was passed over and I felt a complete failure, I was trying to fit in. I was trying to sort of get a seat at that existing table. Um, my second, I was emboldened by having a great mentor to be my to be much more real to myself to be much more authentic to be more comfortable in what I was bringing to the table and actually to shake up the place where I was working and um and that was much more um important not just for me but for the company um if we if we think we've got it all fixed if we think our companies are perfect then fine just leave it as it is but if um if we recognize that actually we need to have better connections between business and society your example that you were sharing of the construction company recognizing there's a need beyond just sort of profit but to have purpose mm-hmm. you know this is a, a big change in where we've been i sometimes wonder if
Christy, I've been reading about some of your interests and I've seen this very unusual hashtag, Linky Brains. What's that? Yeah, so that's a movement that's going on at the moment, which is encouraging linky people uh, to rise up. And so you could define a linky brained person as someone who's a dot connector. Um, so they're often people who live outside of the of the norms. They're not necessarily linear thinkers, but um, definitely people who great at networking don't necessarily follow the status quo in terms of following. Um, you know, what's set by institutions. And often they could be quite rebellious or the change makers. But it's how can we support people who think differently um, to go out and, you know, change things. And so it sounds a little bit like a sort of bat signal that will help people that identify <laughs> like that to unite <laughs> and cause trouble. Is that right? Definitely. Because often these people are working or are in the education system, but don't necessarily feel like they fit in. They're trying to squeeze themselves into a square box. Yes. But rather, we want to let them know that there is an alternative avenue and there's other people that are just like you um, who can support one another. And there are a lot of events going on um, at the moment where, you know, networking events where you can go and meet other linky-brained people. Right, very good. Helena, your brain's probably been described in lots of ways. How linky is it? I think the linky bit sounds quite apt in my case, yes, so um, count me in. <laughs> Excellent. So, Helena, you are head of personal investing at Legal in General. I get the sense that that might have been a bit of a start-up in itself as a, as a unit, if you like. Is there any truth yeah, in that? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and Chrissy's talked about, you know, big companies and um, agile, small companies. And actually what I'm trying to do is reconcile the two within uh, what I'm, I'm working on. I'm trying to, sounds very grandiose, but anyway, I'll say it, engage the nation to invest more. Uh, really not for our sakes, not for people in the city, but actually for people's own financial independence and security. Mm, I mean, it's just zooming out onto that, just thinking, and uh, Christy as well, about how we talk about money as a country, how we think about money. Um, anything you think needs to change? Anything you'd like to change? I think culturally we're kind of embarrassed about it. Um, I started my career actually working in New York for a couple of years and every time I turned on the television there was another money programme, you know, which intrigued me and this was over 30 years ago now. Um, here we, or no one asks each other, you know, how much they earn or what they're doing in terms of saving Interestingly, when Bitcoin sort of started to hit the headlines, I think that was the one exception where WhatsApp group were created. There was a sort of sense of wanting to jump on a bandwagon and it was something a bit more relevant and exciting. And I think we need to capture something of that, but perhaps less speculatively. OK, what's your take on this, Christy? Um, I completely agree, actually. I think, you know, several years ago, you would never have seen sex on TV. Um, but look at it now. <laughs> Sex is all over TV. People talk about it openly. Maybe still some are prudish, but there's a conversation and people are more likely to engage in a conversation around sex, which might be, well, might have been seen as, you know, quite a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Taboo. Yeah, taboo, thank you. A taboo topic. But money hasn't seemed to have changed in any way in terms of how um, how we're talking about it. And, and ultimately, we're not. <laughs> so on that sense, um, on, that, on that point, what are some of the... Someone might be listening thinking, well, it's all right if we don't talk about money. That's fine. We're very civilised. Mm. We don't talk about these things. What are some of the negatives if we don't talk about money? What happens if things go unsaid? Well, the Financial Conduct Authority did a big survey of about 13,000 people last year, and they discovered that about 50%, and this is all different um, adults, um, different age groups, men, women, and so forth, but whatever group you looked at, around a half were what they described as financially vulnerable. 
Um, and ultimately, we want to have more choice and more security in our lives. We now look after, I'd use another example um, that of f- uh, physical health. You know, people didn't used to go to the gym or mm. didn't used to run or do the things that so many people do now. Um, and it's trying to get it so that actually it's another part of your well-being. Yeah even just so you become less stressed about it. So many yes. people have money worries. Um, and again, the, the authorities looked at how um, people reported they felt financially stressed um, and vulnerable themselves. They would declare they were in financial difficulties. And they obviously get ripped off sometimes by loan sharks and pay terrible interest rates, high interest rates. So it's about sort of being in control of yeah. our own destiny. Interestingly, on fitness, there are examples in the 1950s of people being stopped by the police for jogging along the street <laughs> because it was such a suspicious... <laughs> Activity, it's true. Yeah, which shows it's possible to change things. Yeah, doesn't it? indeed. So, um, so Christy, here's a personal question: talking about money with your friends is that uh, the done thing? Something you might be talking about on Facebook, or is it a bit more private than that? Yeah, I don't. I think I even fall into the category of not talking about money. Very rarely do we talk about money with my friends, and I definitely wouldn't put it out on Facebook or social media. I think at the very most, it would come down to. You know, someone saying, oh, I can't go to the pub tonight because I don't have much money. And Mm. that's the extent of it. So, well, let's have an example. Spotify's just floated, hasn't it, Uh, on the the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, If you bought some shares in um, Spotify, of course, other stock exchanges are available. Uh, Is that the sort of thing you would do? And if you did, would you share that on Facebook? And if, if not, why not? I'm trying to get into it. I don't think... At school, I got that financial education I needed enough for me to confidently pursue buying stocks and shares. And I now have started investing because I realise I do actually want my own property at some point in the near future. And so I'm trying to better, better invest and use my money. And so I have now given it to, you know, one of the stock brokerage companies who manage it for me. Um, So I've just taken the easy way out. But at least I'm doing something. Um. (laughs) Absolutely. And is that a... um, And just back to the uh, second bit of the question, is that something you'll now do privately? Or might you say, crikey, my stock in X is up... Uh, X percent and no, share it, share I, it on Twitter I wouldn't share that. And I think Why not? It, it's not because I wouldn't share it because um, I'm feeling prudish about it. I think it's not something that's necessarily entertaining. I think if I look at my social circles that I run within, on social media, I see people going traveling. I see them going to really cool places and bars and exhibitions. And it's very like a cultural, um, I don't know, fest. But it's never about, I don't know, something that is perceived as a little bit more boring or mm. a little bit more sensible. What do you think, Helen? Is well, this like, an interesting bit no, of issue? No, I think it um, uh, completely uh, resonates in what you're saying, Christy. And I think um, one of the reasons, perhaps as well, is because people just see the companies as sort of faceless and, you know, it, it seems like the bad side of capitalism, perhaps. I think one of the opportunities is to go back to, you know, actually aligning interests um, and whether it be about diversity maybe you'd be more interested in investing in a company where they ha- where they did more around encouraging diverse uh, employees where they did the right things by the environment by social policies and so forth at the moment it seems like there's this big disconnect between big business and society and and somehow we have to bring that together i think it does need to be emotionally appealing and exciting um i i recognize that this is an uphill struggle potentially <laughs> but i i know i like a challenge and i actually think it is quite like you know fitness and so forth that again might, people might have thought Oh, I'm a bit embarrassed about being overweight or not fit or so forth. And actually now has become part of the sort of what the cool kids do. You know, it's kind of 
Um, and so I, I realise we've got to work, get the language right. I think an activist approach, actually, you can make a difference. If you invest in your money in these companies, we can take plastic out of the oceans, yep. we can improve gender diversity. No, I, I mean, it. connecting that might be a way through. And so in the broader scheme, I guess the $64,000 question is whose responsibility is this? You're a change maker mm. yourself. We want to change the way Britain, in this case, thinks and talks about money uh, to see fewer irresponsible uh, practices, mm. deliberate or not. Whose responsibility is that? So I've always taken the view that you don't look around and say, oh, that's your job to sort it out. That's your job. I just like when I see a problem, I want to play a part in solving it. And I'll do my bit. I certainly couldn't do it alone. But if I could plant, if I could talk some different language, if I could make it seem more relevant, um, then I think I'd like to put that into the mix. Okay, but you say that you are also a coalition builder, aren't you? You bring people together. So who needs to be on the bus? Who would you start with? Well, I think um, there are obviously other parts of the financial services. Um, there, you mentioned financial education. The government has tried to introduce it into the national curriculum, but only in a sort of small way. Um, so I think the government has a part to play in this. I just think it's important that we first of all work on it's not like eating five fruits and vegetables a day, which sometimes seems a bit nanny state. I don't think people are necessarily jump up and do something about something because they're told to do it. We've got first of all got to get that emotional attraction. Yeah, interesting. Christy, where are you on this? Whose responsibility is it? Um I ultimately in this specific case, in order for change to be made, I think it needs to be made in education. I think that when you're learning about maths, you should also be learning about you know, things that are actually going to impact your future. And, you know, I feel like there's so much that education hasn't prepared me for in, in the workspace or so like in, what? What in would you, my What life. would you put in the bucket? What would you like to In see? the bucket. So yeah. if it came to skills, it would be where's project management or where is... Um, Presentation what, skills. Yeah, where's yeah. public speaking? Um, there are so many skills that I feel like I need to do my job right now, but I haven't, I, w- I wasn't taught those skills. In the bucket would also be just things that a lot of people will face, such as um, applying for a mortgage and... Um, you know, how do I in- invest or, I don't know, think about a pension? Mm. I think there's so much that education teaches you, but there is so much that it misses out. And the things that it misses out actually make you think, what? Mm. <laughs> and I, I couldn't agree with more with that. I've seen this obviously with my own children. I, I would just share one example. You can make it come to life, I think, by using practical examples. So I think people worry, you know, financial language is often very sort of jargon filled and it's all very obscure. Uh, my nine-year-old daughter likes making slime, which is, you know, something that all nine-year-old little girls seem to like doing. But she worked out, you know, that the costs of the making it would be much lower if she bought the glue in bulk and the this in bulk and shopped around for price comparison around all the glitter and other yeah. important things that you need for making slime. And um, it was interesting to me that suddenly she got very conscious about how, how far her pocket money would go when there was a result at the end of it. And I think we need to talk, there's mathletics and other sort of programmes at schools sort of bring a lot of these topics to life now. We need to do the same with money. Excellent. Well, change of every description and what a good way uh, to end it. Christy, Helena, thank you so much for being my guests today on The Lens. 